You are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Joseph Campbell Foundation Podcast, Pathways with Joseph Campbell. I'm your host, Bradley Olson. On this podcast, we share archived audio lectures given by Joseph Campbell over the course of his teaching and lecturing career. On this episode of Pathways with Joseph Campbell, we're listening to a lecture Professor Campbell gave in the early 70s called Concepts of Creativity in Oriental Art. So far in our Pathways podcast, we've been able to be fairly precise about where, when, and to whom Professor Campbell is speaking. Generally, notes were made on or attached to the recording during or shortly after Campbell's lectures, identifying the date, location, and audience. For this particular recording, however, no such information is available to me. However, given the tone of the lecture, which seems to assume some degree of familiarity with the material on the part of the listener, and the sheer volume of information in this lecture, it's quite likely that this may have been a course lecture given in one of his classes, or perhaps it was a lecture at a site something like the Asia Society located on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. As one might guess, there is an extraordinarily long history of art in Asia, which is not merely the history of art in Asia. It is also the history of humankind striving to understand itself in the world in which it finds itself. For instance, discovered on an Indonesian island cave wall in 2017, there's a remarkable, instantly recognizable, 45,000-year-old ochre painting of pigs. One may only imagine the artist who painted them there. These pig paintings are generally agreed by scholars to be candidates for the oldest representational art yet discovered in the world. And we, the viewers, are left to speculate why the artist felt the need to paint these pigs on that cave wall or what those images meant to them. But the exciting thing is that these pigs may not even be close to the oldest representational art. There are cave scenes of hunter-gatherer images ranging throughout India and China that may be much older still. What could be called abstract art appears even earlier, hundreds of thousands of years earlier, in fact, when humans or other hominids etched parallel lines, grids, and circles into bones and shells, abstractions I find to be reminiscent of Rothko or Mandrian. One can't help but wonder then, when exactly did art arise? And from what species? Certainly, the ability to think symbolically, and therefore, in my mind at least, to think mythically, has been available to hominids for perhaps at least hundreds of thousands of years. But in this particular lecture, Professor Campbell won't take us further back than the Neolithic era, as he doesn't want to attend to all Asian art generally, but rather narrows his focus to the art of Asia whose techniques, quote, render the immortal in all things, unquote. What he speaks to in this lecture is the art of Asia that depicts what he says is that immortal spirit that was never born and never dies but is born in all things, lives in all things, and dies 
in all things, and the radiance of which gives things their glory. This is found, he says, in Asian art generally and in Indian art specifically. Of course, with the passage of time and the unavoidable influences of globalization, Asian artists have become more abstract, less formal, less traditional, and many of these artists, like Natvar Babsar, have had exhibitions in London, New York, and other major art centers around the world. Asian art is a vast, complex subject, and like any art, it's a reflection of the society from which it emerges. It follows, then, that contemporary Asian art often reflects the contemporary social, economic, and political issues of the various regions and nation-states throughout Asia. The modern Indian art movement seems to have first flourished in Kolkata in the late 19th century after the old traditions of painting had nearly died out, and the British created new art schools in Bengal. During the colonial period, Western artistic influences began to have a powerful effect on Indian artists. New experiments were taking place in Western art in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and the significance of those modernist developments were not lost on Indian artists. These innovations were not universally accepted in India. A nephew of the Bengali Nobel laureate, Rabindranath Tagore, was one notable artist who wanted to preserve the spiritual elements in Indian art and avoid what he saw as the materialism of the West. Rabindranath Tagore, however, in addition to being a Nobel-winning author, was also a painter and provided the inspiration for a movement in Indian art called contextual modernism, a term first introduced in the late 20th century which advocates for a humanistic perspective and cross-culturalism combined with local elements in art. Contextual modernism favors experimentation and connections to contemporary life, to nature, and to modernist philosophies. Presently, Indian art is thriving, and now in the 21st century, often combines traditional themes with emerging social issues in the country in addition to artistic self-reflection. I mention all this as one way to be mindful that Asian art is not what it was 700 years ago, nor are distinctions between East and West so easily to be made. Therefore, in this lecture, Professor Campbell focuses on the traditional art of Asia found in India, Japan, and China. If you've read, for instance, the Joseph Campbell Foundation's 2003 publication of Myths of Light, Eastern Metaphors of the Eternal, you will find some part of this lecture to be familiar. And you may even want to refer to that book if you'd like to spend more time with the material Professor Campbell's lecture encompasses. But for now, you won't regret giving yourself the pleasure of listening to Professor Campbell bring this material to life, as he inevitably does with lucidity and aesthetics. And with that in mind, I believe you'll enjoy Joseph Campbell's lecture on the concepts of creativity within Oriental art from the early 1970s. Immediately following his talk, I'll be back with some final remarks and talk about some of the important and interesting ideas from the lecture. And now, here's Joseph Campbell.
in the textbooks on literary techniques in India, four types of subject are indicated as proper objects for the artist's attention. They are abstract qualities, such as goodness, truth, beauty, types of action and moods, slaying monsters or slaying an enemy, pursuing a lover, or moods of melancholy and bliss and so forth. The third, types of human being, Brahmins, Kshatriyas, merchants, lovers, and finally, deities. All of these, you will observe, are abstract. There is no interest in the individual as such, as a unique, distinct phenomenon. When one looks at the glorious panorama of Indian art, one sees a repetition of themes, beautiful themes, dependable themes, motifs that recur time and time again. And if you compare that galaxy of forms with their counterparts in post-Renaissance Europe, you'll be struck by the absence of individual inflection in any of these works. Consider the works of a Michelangelo or Leonardo, the time and concern that was spent on rendering what we call character, personality, the individual entity, in such a way that one realizes this is a unique thing. This is altogether antagonistic to the spirit of Oriental art. The stress on the individual as a unique phenomenon, as a unique phenomenon to be cultivated in his idiosyncrasies and brought to flower, so to say, as something that never existed before. And complementary to that, the sense on the part of the individual of his personal responsibility for something, this development may be totally alien to the spirit of the Oriental arts. The Oriental artist not only must be concerned with types when he renders forms, but he must himself seek no such thing as self-expression. The idea of inventive creativity, the idea of self-expression, which we hear when we speak with our artists, the artist's agony finding his own special language, so to say, his own special message, and this term, self-expression, which is so common in our aesthetic uh, discourse, this is alien completely to the Oriental spirit. It's alien completely to Oriental religiosity, which is concerned precisely with the quenching of ego, the quenching of the individual, and the evanescence of this passing moment, which is merely I. 
This leads on the bad side, on the inferior side of Oriental art, to a rather dry academic repetition, a sort of recurrence of stereotypes. I don't want to speak about the negative side of the subject. What I want to speak about is the wonderful mystery and technique for the rendering of the immortal in all things. The wonderful song that one hears when one reads the Bhagavad Gita or any of the great texts of Oriental philosophy. This song of that immortal spirit that never was born and never dies, but is born in all things, lives in all things, and dies in all things, and the radiance of which gives things their glory. This is the song that is sung in Indian art itself and in Oriental art in general, and it's of that that I want to speak somewhat this evening. The Oriental artist, the Indian artist, let me say to start with, I shall move later to the uh, Far Eastern scene, is a sort of yogi. After he has learned the physical techniques, the manual techniques of his craft, after he has performed the assignments assigned to him by his master and done the craftsmanly work that was his to do, and becomes now himself a master craftsman and receives the commission to erect a temple or to design the uh, sculptural decor, which will then be executed by his craftsmen, he must meditate in order to bring before his own spirit, his own inner eye, the vision of the deity whom he is to render. It's wonderful to read of the origins of many Oriental temples, even of many Oriental cities, how a great monarch, a holy monarch, had a dream, a vision, and in this he saw the city. And I think that this is why when one goes to some of these great oriental cities, even today, one feels that one is moving in a dream world. The city is dreamlike in its conception and very frequently was actually conceived in a dream and then this dream rendered as far as possible in stone and brick. The artist proposing to depict a certain divinity, let us say Vishnu, must first study all the texts, and he knows them already from his uh, apprenticeship, to learn what precisely the signs of this deity are, what the traits of this deity are. And then he must compose his mind and pronounce in his spirit the deity's seed syllable. That is to say, he must pronounce the sound which is the verbal counterpart of the deity's image. And then, if he has the fortune to receive the grace of the God's manifestation, the deity will appear in his mind, in his radiant form, and this, then, is the model. That is to say, at their best, the works of Indian art in the great period are renditions, literal renditions of visions. And they have this visionary, dreamlike quality 
as well as a wonderful vigor and power in physical strength. Now, I would like uh, very briefly to uh, try to summarize a certain aspect of Indian contemplation, which seems to me to throw a very vivid light on the aim and uh, techniques of Indian art. This is the very well-known, celebrated Kundalini Yoga. The yoga that consists in awakening the power of the psyche and bringing it up to its full flowering. The word Kundalini means the coiled up one, and it refers to the spiritual energy of the individual, which is thought of as a coiled up serpent biting its own tail. And this coiled up serpent resides at the base of the spine in the coccyx, and that little tail at the end of the spine, those little joints. Sitting in an erect posture, thinking certain assigned thoughts, pronouncing certain syllables, and breathing in a certain way, in a certain number of counts, holding, then out, in through one nostril, out through the other, in through the second nostril, out through the first, this kind of thing, quite a physical exercise as well as a spiritual one. Uh, one is to waken, to awaken this coiled up serpent so that the head lifts and the serpent starts up the spine. This is the image. Now it's thought that through the spine there run a spiritual channel. And along this channel are a number of centers known as lotuses. And these lotuses are located at certain very specific points up the spine. They correspond to certain of the ductless glands in their positions. I will go through them very briefly, indicating, if I can, what the precise experience is, way of experience, that is associated with each of the lotuses. The first, which is called muladhara, which means the root base, is this lotus at the root of the spine where the serpent is coiled up and inert, so to say. A person in this state of uh, this first uh, chakra would be one with no spiritual energy whatsoever. He would be an inert uh, dope. The uh, awakened Kundalini starts up the uh, through the centers. Now the second center, which is called Svadhisthana, which means her favorite resort. The energy is thought of as female. This is at the level of the genital organs. And when the uh, uh, energy reaches this point, the person's whole concern is sex. Everything means sex. Sex is the goal of life. Sex is the reference of everything. In other words, the person has a completely Freudian psyche. And I think we might say that Freud's psychoanalysis is dedicated to the second chakra. Uh, when the Kundalini comes up one further chakra, one further lotus or joint, it is at the level of the navel. This is called Manipura, the city of the glowing jewel. Here, the interest is in consuming everything, being master of everything, eating everything, turning it into your own substance. This is the level of the master man who goes out and whips the world. 
This is the level of the Adlerian will to power psychology. So we may say that Adler's psychology is that of the third chakra. Now we got a long way to go because there are seven of these. Now it's clear that on these levels, the individual satisfaction must come from a relationship to something outside, to an outer object. In the first case, in the case of the second chakra, uh, with an erotic emphasis, in the second, with a power emphasis. Conquest and defeat, or erotic success or failure. The world is interpreted in terms of the implications of these two chakras by the people concerned. Now we come to the fourth chakra, and here begins the field and power of art. This is the chakra at the level of the heart, and it has a very curious name. It's called Anahata. And this term, translated, fully translated, means the sound that is not made by two things striking together. Now, all the sounds that we hear in this world of time and space are made by two things striking together. My voice is made by the air striking against the larynx chords, the vocal chords. Every sound that we hear is made by two things striking together. What then would be the sound that is made not by two things striking together? This is the sound of the energy the divine energy of which the universe itself is a manifestation. Sometimes when you walk past a great power station, a great dynamo, you hear a buzz, just the vibration of electricity in the air. This electricity, or you might say, the sound of the neutrons and protons of the atom, the sound of the energy of the world, as the primary sound of which all things are manifestations. This is the sound that is not made by two things striking together. And it is compared to the syllable OM. Now this sacred syllable OM, which is repeated in all of the prayers of India, is composed of four sounds. One is A, second is U, AU, and the third is M. What's the fourth sound? Come to that. Ah, when you pronounce ah, the mouth is open and the sound is at the back of the throat. Ooh, the sound and the air mass moves forward and fills the mouth. Mm, it closes at the lips. When properly pronounced, you have made all the sounds that the vowels contain. So that om properly pronounced, contains all the sounds of all the words. Therefore, all words are inflections of OM, just as all things are inflections of the divine totality. Language, words. Words apply to things. Words are related to OM, as things are related to the divine energy that is the source of all things. So OM represents the coming into being and going out of being of things. Well, there's a greater development on the syllable OM, but this will hold us for the present. 
Now, what is the fourth syllable? In the three-syllable word, om. It is the silence that's there before and after om is pronounced. That's the totality now. The silence, that is to say non-being, and om, which is being. And neither exists without the other. They are mutually interrelated. So this word, when thought about, contains in itself all the mysteries of the world. However, when you say om, this is made by two things striking together. So it's not the sound. It's not made by two things striking together. However, pronouncing om, repeating it, you may move your mind toward the point where it will hear the sound that is not made by two things striking together. And once that sound is heard, it will be heard in all things. Listen to the sound of the city. Listen to the sound of the icebox. Listen to any sounds without personifying them and defining them, and you will hear Om. When Om has been heard, since it is the very sound of your own heart and being, you are enchanted by it. You are stilled by it. And you hear it everywhere. So there's no need looking anywhere anymore. What you seek is here, it's within all things, it can be heard within all things. This is the level of the chakra of the heart. Now briefly, what is art? Art is an arrangement of forms so that they will show that divine presence which is in all things through themselves. The radiance of art, the fascination of art, is the radiance and fascination of self-recognition in other. And that self is not the self of the ego, not the one I who is seen, but it is that inhabiting self which inhabits all things according to the Oriental philosophy. It is that self which in sound is only. All music is Om, and all things are God. Oriental art, then, is the showing of the divinity of things that you are looking at. And that divinity is not, from the Oriental standpoint, the unique, but the general. Consequently, an art which arranges things so that you hear the Om through the individual is an art which uh, accords with the spirit of the philosophy that uh, lies behind it. Now, what's the next chakra? It's this of the throat or larynx. This is called Vishuddha, or the chakra of purification. Here one is trying to eliminate the interposition of the world between oneself and the pure Om, or the world between oneself and the divine being of God. This is the chakra, so to say, of ascetic disciplines. Vishuddha means exactly purgation. It's like purgatory, where one purges oneself of earthly uh, limitations in order to experience the ultimate. And then we come to this sixth chakra, and this is the, the great one for our point of view, between the eyes, known as Agya, or the chakra of power, where one hears only the pure Om without any interposition, and one beholds the Lord or 
deity of the world. One is, so to say, in heaven. The soul beholds this perfect object, which is God. Now, what are we going to do when we get up here? We have one more jump. Here we behold the God. We behold the divine aim of all life. But it is as though there were a cellophane wall between you and the object. And perfect love requires that there should be no wall. So with that withdrawn, the two, soul and God, as it were, are extinguished, and one is joined beyond duality, beyond pairs of opposites. Here, of course, one is beyond art. But I would say that Indian art deals with the stage between the fourth and the sixth chakras. Either you are beholding the things of the world and experiencing the divine radiance through them, or you are beholding the divine being itself. Now, it's characteristic of Indian art that its stress is on the divine beings. Indian art is a depiction, largely, of divinities. You can go through the great books of uh, pictures of Indian art, and you'll see one after another these great divinities. And when one looks at the Indian temples, there's something quite extraordinary about them. They burst into the landscape. They are not part of the landscape. They emerge, as it were, from a superior realm. They burst into the land. These wonderful caves that are carved right into the rocks. As you go into them, you have moved out of the world of two-eyed optical experience into the world of the uh, transcendent manifestation. Indian art, in general, then, is an art concerned with eliminating the normal two-eyed experience of the world, opening, as it were, this third eye in the middle and seeing the vision of eternity. And it is a kind of vision of heaven. Now, this is rather different, I think, in feeling from the art that one perceives when one turns to the Far East, to China or Japan. Buddhism went from India into Japan, into China. And it brought along with it this wonderful art of depicting heaven, depicting the divinities of the upper world. The um, natural tendency of the Far Eastern mind, however, is much more earthly, much more matter-of-fact, much more devoted to things. As uh, Dr. Suzuki once pointed out, whereas in India there is a, a term meaning myriads, innumerable, which occurs many, many times in their uh, figures indicating the number of years that elapse in the cause of an eon and so forth, in China, the word for all the things in the world is 10,000 things. In India, you have myriads and myriads and myriads and dreams and dreams and dreams. In China and Japan, it's the 10,000 things. It's the things right here that you see that they're concerned with. And so I would say that in general, there is a sort of shift of emphasis from what may be called the sixth to the fourth chakra, from the place where God is seen in his purity, or where the deities appear as in a, an epiphany, to this beautiful world, this world of nature and of man, where one is concerned with the idiosyncrasies of this 
that or another apparition, always as manifesting this wonderful glory of the eternal principle. There are two great odds that may be recognized in the Far East. One is the art of the Buddhist images and the divine images. This is an art created, I would say, in the spirit of the Hindu uh, visionary world that we've been talking about. But the art of the Chinese and Japanese landscape, these beautiful kakimonos of the countryside, uh, has a quite different spirit. And there lies behind that a native Far Eastern philosophy. This is the philosophy in the first place of Chinese Taoism. Tao is this word that we all know now. It means the way, the way of nature. And the way of nature is a way in which dark and light interplay. So there are two principles which combine in various modulations to constitute the world and its way. And these principles respectively are the yang and the yin. Now these two words, yang and yin, in their origin, refer to the sunny and shady side of a stream. The yang is the sunny side, and the yin is the shady side. Now what is the situation on the sunny side? It is light, it is hot, and the heat of the sun is dry. The shade, you have the earth. It is cold without the sun on it. It is moist when the sun doesn't dry up the waters. And it is cold. Moist, cold, and hot, dry in action. Earth and sun. And they are associated respectively with the feminine and the masculine principles, and with the passive and the active principles. Now, there's no moral verdict here. One is not better, stronger than the other. They are the two principles on which the world rests, the light and the dark. These inhabit all things as their inhabiting principle. Now, as I look over the a room here, I see light and dark, light and dark. And uh, wherever we look, that is what we see. A artist can take a brush and put black on white, dark on light, and bring forth the inflections of the world. Now this is the um, wonderful thing here. By using light and dark, he depicts the forms which in their very essence are composed of light and dark. The outer form, light and dark, is a manifestation of what is within. So the artist, with his brush, is manipulating the very principles that underlie the whole of nature. And the artwork brings out, so to say, emphasizes the very essence of the world itself. And that essence is the interplay of these two in many, many modulations. And the delight of seeing this interplay is the delight of the man who does not wish to break through the walls of the universe, but wishes to stay in the world playing with the song and uh, inflection of this great 
duad, yang, and yin. Now, the artist, in order to experience what is before him, has to look. And looking is a passive activity. One doesn't, you can't look harder. You can't say to your eyes, look harder, see more. You look, and, and the world comes to you. There's a wonderful word, wu wei, non-action. It doesn't mean not doing anything. It means not forcing anything. The thing will open up. And just as the divinity showed himself to the meditating Hindu, so does the world show itself in its form to the contemplative eye of the Far Eastern artist. This notion of the world coming into form with a spontaneity of its own, which is the spontaneity of the nature of the artist himself, and then the spontaneity of the brush as it renders this, not anything programmed, not anything planned, is the essential idea behind this Taoist view. There are two words for law that are described by Joseph Needham in his wonderful second volume on uh, science and civilization in China. The word li and the word zi. The word li refers to the markings on a piece of jade, the natural grain of life. Whereas this other word zi refers to the markings that are made on a cauldron by a stylus, markings made by man. And that word refers to social laws that are made, contrived laws as against natural laws, laws thought up by the mind as contrasted with laws experienced as the very pattern of nature. The function of art is to know the latter, the laws of nature, the patterns of nature, the way nature moves. And to know these, the artist cannot force any laws on nature. So this wonderful uh, sensitive task of co coordinating one's own concept of nature, concept of what's to be done, and discipline of action with the given forms of nature is the balance between doing and not doing that yields the perfect artwork. This spirit of doing through not doing uh, inhabits everything, I should say, of traditional action in the Far East. While I was in Japan just now, I saw some of the sumo wrestling, this wonderful, crazy wrestling of these big fellows that, as one person said, the survival of the fattest. They are big fellows, indeed. Uh, now, these men spend most of their time during the course of a bout standing in a crouch looking at each other. And they do this about four times. Meanwhile, the Japanese crowd is in ecstasy watching. And then, bang, they grab, and one follows on the ground in, in within five seconds. It's finished. What are they doing? All this preliminary business. They're, they're supposed to be finding that point of center and inaction out of which movement will come spontaneously. And the one who isn't moving out of that center is the one who hits the mat. <laughs> now, if you want to uh, learn to be a, um, a fencer in Japan and go to a fencing master, he will probably 
just leave you around for a while, washing the dishes and so forth, and every now and then will pop out from somewhere and hit you on the head. <laughs> and uh, then you begin to uh, be prepared for this, you know, I, I, and you prepare for him to come from here, and he comes from there. And uh, presently, after weeks of this sort of thing, you learn that it's best not to be prepared at all, because if you have a notion where it's going to come from, uh, then you're set in the wrong direction, because that's not where it comes from. It, you've got to be in a state of just centeredness and quick response. Uh, I heard a darling story of um, one master of this type who said to the boys that were with him, um, anyone who can catch me by surprise in any way whatsoever, I shall bow before him. And uh, of course, days and days went on and nobody, could, they tried to trick the old boy, but nobody could catch him unawares. One day, uh, he wanted some water to bathe his feet. He'd been out in the mud and the little 10-year-old boy brought this water in for him to bathe his feet in and the water was too uh, cold or warm. And the, the master said, uh, bring it uh, cooler. The little boy brings it in steaming hot and the master, without uh, taking notice, put his feet in the hot water and pulled them out. And he got down, he did a very deep <laughs> salam before the little boy. The sin of inadvertence, not being alert, is the sin of missing the moment of life. And the whole art of non-action that is action is the art of perpetual alertness so that you are experiencing life all the time. Then you don't have to do anything. It lives in you, it moves in you, it speaks itself. Now in all of these oriental societies, Indian, Chinese, or Japanese, art is not simply the art of the canvas or the brush or the sculpture. It's the art of life. Kumar Swami said somewhere, in the traditional Orient, Every man is a particular kind of artist. The artist is not a particular kind of man. As you can see, this awareness of existence is the main thing. And all of the crafts, all of the actions of life are opportunities to experience this divine presence which is our life. The function of the artist is to render that in a particularly acute way for the senses. Now, the Indian artist and the Indian mind, as I've said, tends to go out of the world to the gods, this top or sixth chakra here. The Chinese art of the Tao tends to contemplate nature and have the feeling of nature. Now, there's a tendency in the old Chinese traditional Taoist art and uh, poet works, to leave the city and go out into the country and be in the countryside away from people alone with nature. But in Japan, there are so many people, you can't be alone with nature. You can't be alone anywhere. You climb a big mountain and there's a little party up there already. <laughs> so there's no escape from society. There's no escape from man. The Chinese and Japanese signs, uh, syllables, or uh, ideographs for freedom, GU, are both exactly the same. 
the Chinese sign really means freedom away from society, under the great vault of heaven, picking mushrooms on the misty mountain top. No one knows where I am. But the Ch Japanese interpretation of the word is freedom in the context of society. You stay within the given, within what is imposed upon you by society, the rules of the social situation. And within this context, you find your freedom because you realize the very life that shines through nature shines through man and society also. Now, there's a curious and extremely interesting turn that is given to things by a certain aspect of the Japanese language. There's a kind of very polite discourse, which is known as play language, asobu kotaba, where one, instead of saying, I see that you have come to Tokyo, says, I see that you are playing at being in Tokyo. The idea is that people do what they do voluntarily, as one enters a game. Life is a game. This goes so far that when you say to a person using this polite, very polite language, when you say, when you wish to say, I hear that your father has died, the way to say it is, I understand that your father has played at dying. Uh, I submit that this is a glorious approach to life that uh, what has to be done, you do with such a will that you play at it. This is what Nietzsche calls the love of life, amor pati. And it is the point that Spengler makes when he quotes Seneca saying, he who goes with fate, the fates lead. He who resists fate, the fates pull. You've got to go. So realize that in coming into life, and of course this underlies part of the oriental notion of reincarnation anyhow, in coming into life, you wanted to come into life, otherwise you wouldn't have come. In coming into this world at this time, you wanted it at this time. It's a big, great thing you decided to do. Well, don't lose your nerve. Go through and play the game. So this, what I would call essentially aristocratic attitude of playing the game, and you, as you know, anyone who has played a game, I'm sure we've all played one game or another, the games that are most fun are the ones that are the hardest. Uh, the ones with the most complicated system of problems are the ones that hold you if you really want to play a game. And so it is that artists are not content with doing simple things in their art. They like the challenge. A difficult thing. Now this whole attitude is made quite vivid in Japan by the art that is implied in that's such a thing as the tea ceremony. Japanese life is terribly formal. Even walking into a room and out, you're bound to make 98 mistakes before you go in and out. You're, you're a, a bull, a boor, all the time. But to make it still more difficult, there's this exquisitely intricate business of the tea ceremony. And here, 
I knew one little old lady in Kyoto who has been studying tea ceremony for 60 years, and she has her tea lesson twice a week still. <laughs> and she always speaks with the play language when she speaks. The, um, the little tea uh, spoon that's used to take the tea out and put it in the bowl. If when you put it down on the table, you put it here instead of here, that's to say one sixteenth of an inch wrong. Oh, everybody knows it's worse than going to meet the queen. You've just got to be precisely on the mark all the time. Now, the thing is, to perform this exquisitely difficult affair with ease, with grace, and carry on what would appear to be a casual conversation, meanwhile. Then, I remember when I was an athlete at Columbia on the track team, we used to wear sweat clothes when we would practice so that when we get in a race and take the sweat clothes off, running would be easy, you know? It would be very light. So it is here. After the tea ceremony, life in Japan is easy. <laughs> this attitude now, art as the game of life, or the game of life as itself an art, is a one vigorous, joyous approach to the world problem, and is quite in contrast with ours in the West, which is based on the notion of universal guilt. There was a fall somewhere, you remember? And <laughs> we're all in a mess as a consequence. In contrast to this, there's this Oriental idea, the world is God's play. It's a game he's playing. Of course people get hurt playing football. People fall off horses, people fall out of automobiles. There's no such thing as a game without somebody getting hurt. Even chess, you use up your eyes and brains. The uh, fun of the game is that it's a risky one, in a way. And this is the game that was designed for us, and uh, here goes. Art, then, is, as it were, the culminating statement, the key statement of the essence of life as a game, as a play. And this corresponds finally, to go back to India again, with the Indian notion of the world as God's play. So there's a wonderful community here between all grades of life as art. Now I thought I'd conclude with a little anecdote that uh, is slightly mysterious but uh, it has a point that I think illustrates the main uh, idea that I've been trying to communicate here. It tells of a young Chinese scholar named Chu, who, who with a friend went for a walk in the mountains. And he and his friend came to an old monastery, an old temple that had fallen down, and uh, there were just a few walls standing, and in this there lived an old monk an old Buddhist monk. And this old Buddhist monk uh, greeted the two young men when they arrived, and he showed them the walls and uh, ruins of the temple. Now, up on one of the walls were the remains of a quite charming picture. And the picture showed a little town. And standing in one of the streets was a girl with her hair down, meaning she was unmarried. The married woman would have her hair bound up. And uh, two, looking at this, 
just fell in love with that girl there in the picture. He was utterly enchanted by her. And before he knew it, because of the power of the monk, he was in the picture, and there was the girl. And she said, uh, come in. And in he went. And they had a passionate love affair, which lasted for several days. And then her little friends, her companions arrived, and they said, oh, oh, and your hair is still down? You should put your hair up. <laughs> so uh, she did. And uh, they continued to live this way in the village for a while. And then one day, a monstrous noise was heard outside, and there were some official uh, officers coming to scout out foreigners and aliens. And there was a terrible commotion, and the, a young girl said, uh, you better hide, you better hide, you better hide, you better run down here. And he started to run and hide, and pretty soon, he came out of the picture. And he was standing right where he'd been before he went into the picture. And his friend, who had missed him, was uh, delighted to see his return. And uh, then they turned and they looked at the picture, and what do you know? The girl's hair was up. <laughs> now, I don't think I want to try to interpret this. I thought I would conclude with a brief reference to Zen, which I know has become uh, rather fashionable recently. The um, word Zen, as you undoubtedly realize, is a Japanese uh, way of pronouncing a Chinese word, which is Zhan. And this Chinese word Zhan is a Chinese way of pronouncing a Sanskrit word, which is Jhana. And the Sanskrit word Jhana means contemplation. Contemplation of what? Contemplation of what one ought to be contemplating, namely the divine presence that inhabits all things. Now, in um, India, this contemplation is represented usually by the Buddha sitting, contemplating, bringing the Kundalini up, and so forth. This is the way of the monk who leaves the world and turns inward and contemplates inwardly. But there is another way of contemplating. And this is the way of the landscape art and the Chinese art and the way of Tao, namely seeing the thing through all things. This is known as walking contemplation. You walk around. And when Buddhism went from India to China, uh, it was gradually assimilated to the Chinese attitude toward life. And in the 8th century, this uh, term was given. Dhyana, or Chan, meant rather walking than sitting. Then, this Buddhism, this Zen, or contemplative Buddhism, contemplation while walking, while being in life, went to Japan. And in the uh, 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries, the high centuries of the Japanese uh, uh, medieval period, since it had to do with living life and experiencing life with alertness, it was a quite proper attitude for 
the knightly man. Just as in the European Middle Ages at the same time, you have the monk knight and the Christian cross, which is also at the same time the sword, held this way, it's a, uh, it's a cross, this way, it's a sword. So also in Japan, you have the monastic discipline of the knightly monk. I spoke of Bushido, of the uh, fencing and the small. Here in uh, athletics and in uh, combat, the principles of this contemplation are embodied. So Buddhism in Japan, or Zen Buddhism in Japan, became associated with this knightly way, the way of the knights, which is a very military way, I mean, the strict discipline. Now, in the course of the centuries, um, there's been a great development of Buddhism in Japan in, in many, many directions. But by a curious irony, the stress on seated meditation today in Japan is maintained most strongly in the Zen monasteries. It is simply amazing to walk into a Zen monastery, where, into a Zen meditation hall, where these young monks are seated with the rigidity of images. And walking up and down is a man with a stick that long, it's, it's over yard long, over his shoulder, as though it were a, a weapon. And any young meditator who looks as though sleep were overtaking him gets this right on the shoulder with a terrific wallop. Um, this is Zen in Japan today. It's a uh, technique of meditation and realization that is extremely strict. And it is entered into voluntarily by people who want to be brought through to a realization, Zen contemplation through meditation. So that in the tradition of uh, Zen Buddhism in Japan and China, we have two quite distinct types. One, that of walking, and the other, that of meditating. But now please realize that when one walks in the Orient, one walks according to the rules of the society. It is freedom within the context of the society. And as far as anyone can see, looking at the Zen situation in Japan today, there is nothing like the Zen beat, the, uh, the, the wild uh, Dharma bums, the uh, attitude is, uh, is one of uh, rather strict life forms. And the realization, the dhyana, the zen, the meditation, the contemplation comes in the context of the social situation. Zen is the great source of the tea ceremony. And I think that when one thinks of zen, it should be rather in the way of the excessive discipline of the game of the tea ceremony than in the way of the uh, sort of let it all go and drop everything and, uh, and just uh, seek nature in a, in, a, in a direct romantic way. My personal feeling is that the oriental lesson of art as play, life as play, and a difficult play which 
we love to play is lost if Zen isn't understood in quite the way in which I presented it now. Thank you very much. Professor Campbell began this lecture by looking at the difference between traditional Asian and traditional European art, noting that the significant differences lie in their different centers of attention. European art tried to perfect the image of the world it captured, tried to be as close to real life as possible, and to represent life as seen through the eyes of the artist, and get as close to an objective sense of reality as possible. Western art generally relied on a fixed perspective and conveyed a dimension of the immediacy of time and material reality through the artist's self-expression. Western art is generally highly detailed, object-centered, and viewed from a specific individual point of view and tries to convey a message. Even in its portraiture of individuals, some famous and many whose names have been lost to the passage of time, most Western art conveyed an expression of a mood, a feeling, or the character of the subject. Often a familiar individual experience or emotion is evoked in the viewer by the art, be it despair, pensiveness, love, beauty, or even wonder. Professor Campbell noted that the self-expression and the emphasis on the individual as a unique phenomenon was generally alien to Asian art, in which the diminishment of the ego was one of its primary organizing principles. Unlike Western art, Eastern painting was not generally factual painting in the sense that it didn't necessarily represent a real scene. Asian painting had been based more upon the imaginary and attempted to invoke a transcendent spiritual experience in the viewer. Asian art used a dynamic perspective that allowed the viewer a sense of movement without regard for realistic constraints. It tried to go beyond the physical world to capture the metaphysical realities as one's inner life and spirit, free from the influence of the ego, would experience it. Asian art tended to pay less attention to light and shadow, and this lack of attention resulted in the creation of a less personalistic, a less unique experience, and it conveyed more of a sense of the transcendent eternal, an experience available to everyone who can learn how to see rightly. Chinese paintings in particular often displayed negative white space or even unpainted areas that offered a space in the art itself for imagination and conceptual conjecture. This empty space was really not empty space at all, but allowed the viewer to, in a sense, enter the painting. The name that was given to this negative space is the middle void. The middle void is the empty space between the yin and the yang, and allows the viewer to discover an inner landscape where the complex, subtle interactions of yin and yang take place, and refers to the emptiness of the real and the illusion of the material world. Unlike traditional European art, there was no authoritative way to understand traditional Asian painting. 
The artist didn't want you to see the world through his eyes, but instead he wanted you to enter the middle void through his mind, where the artist has, through contemplation, beheld the principal nature of all things, what Professor Campbell called the divine aim of all things. The artist's mind created a path for the viewer to travel up to the transcendent experience, then down, and then back again. One can therefore understand why Professor Campbell spoke of this in terms of the kundalini. This requires the intentional involvement and practice of the viewer, which is, like the yogic experience of the kundalini, both physical and mental. To more practically illustrate this principle of the middle void, we can look at one of the many legends surrounding the 7th century Chinese master painter, Wu Daozi. The most well-known of these tales has it that the emperor commissioned Wu to paint a wall of his palace. So Wu created a beautiful mural depicting an idyllic sylvan glade in which wildlife abounded that was rich in flora. And there was, at the bottom of a mountain, a cave that Wu had painted into the scene. After he had finished and he was viewing the mural with the emperor, Wu clapped his hands and entered into the cave. He beckoned the astonished emperor to follow him, but the cave quickly closed and the mural vanished from the wall. Now, perhaps this legend teaches us that to enter the middle void, the place of the always unfolding, the heart of the indomitable fecundity and the creative dynamism of being, one must have the mind of an artist. Perhaps this is why Professor Campbell has sometimes referred to artists as the creators of future myths. Indeed, even philosophers such as Michel Foucault have commented on the importance of developing the attitude of an artist towards one's own life. In his book, on the genealogy of ethics, Foucault says that art has been relegated to objects only and not to individuals or living. Couldn't everyone's life become a work of art, he asks? Why should the lamp or the house be an art object, but not our life? Traditional Asian art, Campbell says, was an arrangement of forms that revealed the divine presence in all things. If we can, as Foucault suggests, successfully make our own lives art, then they will reflect the divine presence precisely because our lives are that divine presence. We recognize that we, as well as others, are not the separate individual self of the ego, but rather we are an aspect or a manifestation of the animating principle that inhabits all things. This, Professor Campbell says, is the purpose of traditional Oriental art, to show us the divinity of the things at which we're looking. Professor Campbell also speaks a bit about looking, about seeing as a passive activity, and invokes the notion of wu wei, a Chinese word that literally means no action. And it's typically used to denote effortless action, non-exertion, or as Campbell put it in this lecture, non-action. 
Professor Campbell says that the entire art of non-action is the art of achieving perpetual alertness so that one experiences the fullness of life all the time. So what then is the type of seeing which would allow one to achieve such a state of perpetual awareness? And what's more, how does one achieve it without effort? In other words, how to achieve it without the intention to achieve it, without any particular desire to find what one may be seeking? To help illustrate this point, I recall a 1998 film called The Zero Effect, which has a marvelously clever script by Jake Kasdan, in which the main character, a private investigator, says in a voiceover, Now a few words on looking for things. When you go looking for something specific, your chances of finding it are very bad. Because of all the things in the world, you're only looking for one of them. When you go looking for anything at all, your chances of finding it are very good. Because of all the things in the world, you're sure to find some of them. Now, that's a pretty good understanding of Wu Wei. But the effort of no effort is a difficult thing to accomplish. As soon as you try to be effortless, you failed. As soon as you focus on being in the moment, you're out of it. It's one of those things that is relatively easy to talk about and very, very hard to realize. In Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Nature, in which he writes of becoming, quote, a transparent eyeball, unquote, again, he's describing this state of perpetual awareness. Parenthetically, I might add that for Emerson, the word nature was equivalent to Campbell's concept of the immortal spirit born in all things. Here's what Emerson says about becoming a transparent eyeball. Standing on the bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air and uplifted into infinite space. All mean egotism vanishes. I become a transparent eyeball. I am nothing. I see all. The currents of the universal being circulate through me. I am part or parcel of God. Now, this is also the line from Emerson that helped me understand more fully Campbell's frequent remark about becoming transparent to the transcendent. Like Emerson, great poets are also artists who know how to attend. They are, it seems, natural practitioners of Wu Wei. And one such poet, Anne Carson, is particularly gifted in the art of seeing, and I can't recommend her work highly enough. In one of her volumes of poetry and essays called Men in the Off Hours, she writes, The way to know is not by staring hard. She goes on to say that one must reach, mind empty, towards that thing you should know, until you get it. Now, reaching with an empty mind is simply another way to understand Professor Campbell's notion of looking as a passive activity. I'm convinced that the visual arts, literature, and here I'm including myths, and poetry are a kind of telling that stimulate seeing. The fundamentally metaphorical nature of art, literature, and poetry pulls us, the viewer and the reader, into its images more and more deeply as we look and read 
And of course, reading is another kind of looking. Since human consciousness doesn't seem to be able to take in the whole work at once, one must read in sentences or view an artwork in segments. And then later, upon some kind of recombinant reflection, a wholeness is revealed from these fragments. At first, it might be only the wholeness of the single poem you're reading or the artwork you're witnessing. But that single work may also lead you to see in it the entire cosmos and the wholeness of existence. This is fundamentally the power of myth. Like art and poetry, through metaphor it connects us to the past, and therefore to duration and a kind of timelessness. It's a way of experiencing the eternal, the immortal within ourselves and within everything else. The art compels the seeing and opens our awareness to the world of things needing, even wanting, to be unveiled and seen in their transcendent actualities. That is perhaps the nature of the lesson we might take from Wu Daozi's disappearance in the cave of his own painting. We too are capable of transcending our own egos. We too are able to discover the truth beyond the ego and the material fact. We, too, are capable of becoming nothing, so that we may see everything. In the words of Wallace Stevens' poem, The Snowman, one realizes that one who is nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there, and the nothing that is. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back next month with the new Joseph Campbell Lecture, on the Joseph Campbell Foundation's podcast, Pathways with Joseph Campbell. Pathways with Joseph Campbell is a production of the Joseph Campbell Foundation and the Mythmaker Podcast Network and is produced by John Booker and Elias Mirnoff. Executive producer, Robert Walter. Your host has been Bradley Olson. Editing and audio services provided by Seth Balin. Music exclusively provided by APM Music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org.